Hello there and welcome now to the very rad pop should never save us. As uh, long time listeners will know, sometimes we go for the modern charts so you can stay hip and sometimes you can find out what your parents were listening to around the time you conceived. I'm delighted to be joined by the star of the show, the very wonderful Holly and my name's James. How you doing Holly? Bodacious greetings to you all. I'm doing great. We are in 1985. This is our most sonically consistent chart yet. Without a doubt. I mean, the thing that's going on here is a lot of diverse artists, a lot of different ideas going on. But it seems as though pop has become quite monolithic by this stage. People have worked out how to make pop music to order. I do think it's worth talking about the actual technological stage we're at here. Scientists managed to crack FM synthesis. Essentially what this means, and I'm not going to get too technical... Synthesizers before the development of FM synthesis were based around subtractive synthesis, which is you have a sound generator which is putting out a signal, and then you change that signal by using what we call envelopes and filters. So you can change that to a whoop or something, but you're still ultimately dealing with like a raw waveform generated by an electronic oscillator synthesizer of all time the mini mode with fm synthesis though the basic idea is that you can create sounds additively by adding together multiple sine waves it had been known in mathematics for a while that you could theoretically replicate any sound by adding together sine waves and therefore represent it mathematically. But it was only in 1974 that they actually cracked the equation. Yamaha started to put out synthesizers that used this principle, but they were extremely expensive. Around the turn of the 70s to the 80s, microchip manufacture got cheap enough. Suddenly, this was able to be in everything. And most prominently, we have the Yamaha DX7, which came out in 1983 and immediately replaced the subtractive synthesizers in all pop music. Everyone loved it at first because it was able to produce things that sounded so much more like real instruments than any other synthesis had been capable of before. However, it soon became apparent that not only did it not sound like those instruments, it also sounded kind of whiny and nasal and very twangy. There's a lot of very plucky sounds on the DX7 um, because that was what it was good at. It was also infamously nearly impossible to program if you weren't a sound scientist. So most people just stayed using the presets. The result of that is we have the most incredibly unified sounding chart. You can hear the same keyboard patches turning up again and again and again. Can you imagine, James, how this must have felt to people who lived through the 1970s, which were mostly based on people playing traditional instruments, to suddenly go to charts just sounding completely synthesized and not using particularly nice sounds either? You're going to feel 
completely overwhelmed by the ubiquity of these sounds. Yeah. It's starting to seem as though that there's been a complete lack of ideas there. They've just completely drained out of the pop charts. Yeah. Everybody's sounding the same. The amount of time you need to sink into becoming a pop star has been reduced overnight. You can turn up with a synthesizer, it seems, and be on top of the pops the next week if your haircut is fashionable enough. I know people who still struggle to enjoy pop music from this era just because of how much it was. You'll still find people of a certain age who have a sort of a knee-jerk negative reaction to synthesizer music in general and don't view it as valid. You have technicians here making noise. They're not artists because nobody can play the guitar. And part of that was because you would get people who were rock stars who played their instruments in the 1970s would suddenly hook up with producers and do everything on FM keyboards like everyone else because that was what was needed to sell. Krista Berg's legendary Lady in Red, one of the default go-to worst records of all time. I've never seen you looking so gorgeous as you did tonight. Krista Berg was actually originally a prog guy. Prog rock puts a lot of emphasis on musicianship. It was seen as a way that you could get like an established name doing something very cheap that might sell very, very big. And there was a lot of that sort of apathy towards the actual art. Because the other thing that happened in the 1980s was this was the decade that neoliberalism happened. Let me just have a word about monetarism. It isn't a newfangled theory. It is as essential as the law of gravity and you can't avoid it. It's understandable how a lot of people connected synthesizers to this kind of sellout culture. Funnily enough, in 1980, the undertones led by Fertile Sharkey had a line in their song, My Perfect Cousin. So there was that dividing line that some would walk over from the seeming realness back to basicness of punk mm. towards a kind of upper-class, poncy experimentation thing mm. that was going on. I think there's an absolute beauty to these sounds and I think that there's a privilege I have of coming to them later and being able to sort through the best stuff versus mm. the mindless dreck that was also there because there's always going to be chances in the charts. But that mixture of new wave vocals and synths, I think that there's times when that comes to a brilliant mixture of unexpected songwriting. Mm. I find a lot of the 80s singers are incredible. The style of singing at the time does line up with what I like to hear in vocalists, which is relatively extreme, but also very honest. And combining that with these very regimented electronic backings does create a lot of why I think this particular era of pop music is so evocative to people who didn't grow up with it. At its best, the beauty of man and machine. And let's face it, synthesizers are actually better than real instruments because you can make them do more. <laughs> like, nobody says this, but it's true. <sighs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you don't want to get caught up in some authenticism concern about this stuff. Uh, there's that stuff where the blues players moved from acoustic guitars to electric, and the canniest caught on to the fact that electrification and amplification didn't just increase the volume of their guitars, they made them capable of getting into weird, unexpected noises. So there's always been that battle between what's seen as authentic versus what technology was making sounds capable of, which had never been heard by human ears before. Mm. Um, 
And the other big technological development that we've had since this is MTV. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. Which launched in 1981. It was originally serving only a small number of people in New Jersey, I believe. So MTV was, at the beginning of the 80s, incredibly racist. And they only played white artists because that was what their advertisers liked. The result of that was that a lot of British white new wave artists ended up getting played. Absolutely. The thing about MTV in its earliest days, it was crying out for content because at that time it was it saw its entire brief as music television and who had videos made well it were these arty weird freaks from england who had come from the aftermath of the punk scene the new romantic stuff that had happened there and for that reason that got some completely unexpected stuff just slammed all over as much of america as possible leading to what was then called the second british invasion also had a similar backlash that Disto had with a lot of homophobia because of the way that these people presented themselves. And that authenticity line that was seen to have been crossed there, these guys don't play their instruments, they're not as manly as us Americans come and see Van Halen live at the Troubadour on Monday, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, two modern ears, a lot of the masculine posturing we have on this chart also sounds extremely camp. I mean, take number six this week, St. Elmo's Fire, Man in Motion by John Parr. Which I believe is an American football anthem and the sound of lots of sweaty men in very tight trousers ramming into the back of each other. Which is brilliant in that sense, yeah, but you do get the sense that the artist was completely unaware and would have been offended by the suggestion that there was anything homoerotic. This is what 1980s pop also delivers that is fascinating. There's almost no irony. (laughs) But I really like that. I like that lack of irony in there. I like the fact that there's no fear of being seen as pretentious. Mm. I think it allows you to create art through a lens that's completely unfiltered it's just you communicating to the audience without going oh no I can't reveal that about myself Um, and I don't necessarily mean that lyrically I mean musically as well just going there Mm. full balls to the wall big this is what I want to say so Yeah. yeah that's another reason this chart worked well for me in a lot of ways it's part of the result of having more keyboardists involved because the thing about instruments is they do shape the way that you see your world right the keyboard is the instrument where you can accompany yourself it is the one for the independent people the people who don't have any friends the nerds i also think it also reduces the number of other egos that these people had to deal with in order to get their visions across so should we get on to it Sounds good to me. So starting in at number one for the charts in the 27th of October 1985 to the 2nd of November, we have The Power of Love by Jennifer Rush. Sometimes I am And 
this just immediately exemplifies that feeling of here are some emotions. You have to deal with these. <laughs> it's a piece of songwriting that goes big and it certainly does not go home. Um, no. I'm pulled along by this song. I'm going to be honest. I think this one rocks. <laughs> I, I, it's a, it's, it should be a guilty pleasure, but I, do, I don't really feel guilty about liking this. This is masterful. There's a sense of restraint too, even in the massiveness of this huge power ballad, which is ultimately about a fairly stable relationship you know, you would expect these kinds of theatrics to be about heartbreak or unfulfilled love, maybe. But no, this is about being comforted by their presence. When the world outside's too much to take, that all ends when I'm with you. The building structure of it, very influenced by Phil Collins's In the Air Tonight, which was a massive trend maker. You get this basic keyboard backing. And feel each move. With this patient escalation, and it takes until the second chorus before the drums kick in. Cause I am always by your side. And they are 80s drums. They are the gated snare, this sound that was discovered by Phil Collins by accident when he put his snare drum through the talkback mic on the mixing desk, which yeah. had an incredibly strong compression on it, with the result being it has this incredible long reverb. So then you use a gate to cut that off, and it creates this sound like dropping a steel bath out of a window. The, for listeners who may not be familiar with it, it's the song that was used famously in the Cadbury advert with the Gorilla drumming. There's definitely a restraint in the way that it builds towards everything being turned up to 11. But one place where I don't feel any restraint, and this isn't a criticism, and that's the vocals at yes. all. She is just blasting and belting this. And that, for me, is worth the price of admission. I tend to generally like more vulnerability in a vocalist. So like Laura Branigan's version might have worked better for me with the more shakiness. But this song is about the redemptive power. And that's what you feel throughout. One of the problems with this was I was just embarrassing myself running around my bedroom, listening to this, doing air clutching and lip syncing along with it. But that's because the melody is so infectious. You just cannot resist wanting to go into that suite. Because I'm your lady. <laughs> yes. It's built to take you with it. There's something that feels very Western Europe about this, excluding the UK. This is not an American production. She recorded it in Germany. She's an American mm. expat. <laughs> and I feel that sense of melodramatic pop music that's within the German tradition. The German general lack of interest in appearing cool. Yeah. Germany, the country that invented Schlager. Simultaneously, this is quite rare in a post-1960s sense in that it was re-recorded for a foreign market there's a Spanish version of this she did a version of it called Si tu eres mi hombre y tu mujer si 
well. You can hear the flamenco influence, the boom, here's how we feel. It has a ridiculous video too. One of the things in the 1980s was a lot of videos were based around movies because movie tie-in singles were a massive money spinner. And the result of that is that you then started getting music videos that were trying to look like they were movie tie-ins of movies that didn't exist. This is in fact one of them. It tells a story of a love triangle between some New York gangsters or something. Yeah. <laughs> this is the era where Kenny Lowe Odin's and Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer all discovered together that if you put the synergy of a hit movie and a hit song, everything was advertising it all at once. Ghostbusters, of course, was a huge one. There's something strange in your neighbourhood. Who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! Um, it does also have one mental level bad lyric, though, which is... that I can't go on is light years away. That's such a strange way of putting that sentiment. It feels like it's backwards, isn't it? I think that's a a rare dull point there. Which is your favourite power of love? Because obviously there's Jennifer Rush's power of love. love. There's Frankie Goes to Hollywood power of love. love. There's also Huey Lewis's and the News's power of love. Which one works the best for you? Ooh, I think this might be my favourite one, the Jennifer Rush version. Um, Mm -hmm. The Huey Lewis and the News version, I think it has a nice anti-capitalist message to it. Instead of being about a relationship, it is about love. Almost a Paul's letter to the Corinthians sort of way. However, Huey Lewis and the News' songs all sound exactly the same to me. So I'm going to have to penalise it for that. Frankie Goes to Hollywood is mostly interesting because it is a group of incredibly gay shock rockers discovering religion. I'll protect you from the hooded claw. Keep the vampires from your door. When the chips are down, I'll be around. With my undying, death-defying love for you. And once you're out of that particular context, it's just overwrought gloop. I agree that Frankie Goes to Hollywood is the worst. Hugh Lewis's works the best for me. I think it's got a pop in vitality. So next up comes a song that we've actually encountered before, thanks to music genius Harry Styles. Mm-hmm. We have here Take On Me by Aha. There's no reason to mess around or play coy with this. This is simply one of the best songs recorded by anyone ever. This is <laughs> got a swirling, beautiful vocal. It's just what pop music needs to be. It took um, Aha a long time to figure out how to express this. There's multiple demos of this song floating around and they're all really bad. <laughs> yeah. 
just how difficult it is to get the synth sound right mm. you can't just chance upon the right one and have an amazing number one song come out of it listening to them take away what is inessential is a fascinating process to behold i love hearing songs go through the demo process now you're a you're a singer holly how do you feel about the, the falsetto vocals on this do you find them impressive i certainly do have you tried singing this I have. I'm not going to do it on the microphone, Neither am I. For me, the <laughs> note I can't actually hit is the first note of that chorus. Mm-hmm. Uh, my voice doesn't go that low. When we think about the voice, we actually have about five different parts of the anatomy we're making music with. The chest at the bottom, the head at the top. And then between those, every time we shift to using another part of our vocal tract anatomy, we get a break, which is a change in the tone of our voice. And Morton Harkett is able to go straight from the bottom of his chest voice to this incredible note at the top of his head voice without ever creaking or cracking on the break. Um, He is, in fact, a remarkable singer. If you hear him perform Take On Me now, he did an acoustic set of it in the 2010s. All the focus on his vocal, and it is gorgeous. You're all the things I've got to remember. You're shying away. I'll be coming for you anyway. Take on me. A lot of the time, I'm drawn to non-singers, the likes of Marty Smith, Joe Strummer, John Lydon. Um, I love the battle between a lack of technique and a surfeit of things to say. But this is one of those cases where someone is technically brilliant, and I can tell that that's the case, despite... (laughs) Knowing essentially nothing. He also participated in The Masked Singer recently, playing the Viking. You're you're gonna like this. He actually performed a Harry Styles song. He performed Watermelon Sugar. <laughs> nice. He also performed Take On Me. <laughs> that would make that's that's kind of showing your hand there. Viking. Famously, this was helped, as it was so much of the rest of the charts in this era, by a extremely innovative and imaginative video where there's a mixture of animation, pencil sketch, and a person who is lusting off that teen idol. And 
it's perfect for the song because it takes reality as presented and pulls it into this dream world and mixes it all up together it's extremely well done it's a weird girls comic of the type that people used to read in the mid-century it is helped by the fact that morton harkip really just looks like a 1950s dream boat he is a gorgeous human being yeah He's got that John Travolta in Greece thing going on here, which is very appealing. But cuter. There's like a softness to him. You want to be his mother too. Uh, it's it's <laughs> I do. lovely. You're right. <laughs> cool. So next on our charts is, and I'll say this again straight up front, the surprise for me, the very underrated Colonel Abrams is trapped. Should I listen what you say? Or listen what your folks say? It's a tough decision to make. I don't really want to lose you, but I don't want your folks to turn me over to the hands of the law. Which is a beautiful song, a brilliant dance song, and very much the beginning of house music. But you can still hear those late 70s, even early 70s, soul and funk influences going on here. I think it's absolutely incredible, actually. Colonel Abrams was another Detroiter. He was in a group with Prince on lead guitar before Prince became Prince. Detroit, obviously, is known for being the place where house music originated. It grew out of a subculture that enjoyed dancing to Kraftwerk songs, which was pretty wild because Kraftwerk was promoted as being art music for um, people to sit and listen to very seriously without moving their bodies. It's often said, as a kind of a pat simplification, that it came out of the fact that a lot of people in Detroit were employed in factories listening to rhythmic machine noises all day and then wanted that energy in their downtime. Which is something that plays into the Detroit music that we spoke about before, the Motor City, mm. Motown thing. There's those irresistible rhythms that run across the Motown tracks. It's also been a very strong reason why the Motown music ended up becoming very popular in Northern UK in the 1970s. Northern Soul. And it's been a way that music has been affected by factories for hundreds of years. Clog dancing in northern Britain originated because people were dancing to the sound that were made in the mills by the shuttles. Fascinating. Not only does the instruments that we use to express ourselves have a big part of the sounds that we make, but the very labour, the way we spend our days, of course, going to form the core of our entertainment and escape from that very labour. It seems to be remembered mostly as a one-hit wonder. It's included in a lot of sort of best of the 80s compilations, but a lot of house music pioneers recognise it as being a classic. Definitely comes from the same sound universe as something like the uh, Beverly Hills Cop theme. Those beautiful squiggly fifth synths. See, I'm trapped and I'm so confused. I'm like a man in a cage and I'm so in love with you. The thing is, it's such a shame the way that this worked out for Colonel Abrams because mm. as a one-hit wonder, he never really received a huge financial gain from this because he died with diabetes without a place to live in 2016. Mm. A lot of musicians who had cited him as an influence were 
they got together, they tried to crowdfund as much of a comfortable life as possible. But for someone to have made this and to have had such a huge influence on house music and dance music in general, <laughs> to not have lived that life on a beach near their mansion, it's an incredible shape. But uh, this song is going on my forever playlist. The vocals are beautiful. The sounds behind them are... Just a completely underrated song. At number four, we have Elton John with Nikita. Oh, Nikita, you will never know Anything about my home I never know how good it feels to hold you Nikita, I need you so This did nothing for me. I try very, very hard to see what's good about Elton John. That's one of the things we do with this podcast is to see why were these things popular? What's good about that? Elton John in the 70s, there's a lot of stuff there that while it doesn't connect with me on a gut level, I can see why it's good. Saturday night's all right for fighting. I guess that's why he called it the blues. These are all good pieces of songwriting done with Bernie Taupin, who co-wrote Nikita. I struggle so hard to pay attention to this song, though. I don't understand why it was popular. I think the popularity of it may have something to do with the premise. A sort of Iron Curtain romance. Bernie Taupin, as a writer is like a lot of people who write lyrics but not music and came out of the musical theatre tradition. He tends to overwrite. There's no real howlers in this one lyrically, but it could be a song from a Cold War-themed musical about two separated lovers. But I think I can understand why that sentiment, falling in love with a Russian girl and wanting to bring her back over the border and she will have no comprehension of what life is like for you. It's a pretty complicated situation for a pop song like this. Sure, I can see that. And I think that we're at a time where the Soviet Union still seems to be the evil empire that will last for another thousand years. We're also dealing with the era where Reagan is increasing the amount of hostilities. Nuclear war is beginning to feel a bit more imminent. As a song then that proves there are people capable of love on the other side of that wall, that's what's going on there. We're not dealing with the songwriting that's caught over. It's not the production, but it's the message. You've solved that for me. It is a plea for tolerance, and it is a plea for tolerance in a wider sense as well. It would be a bit boring of me to link it to Elton's um, difficulty accepting and coming out with his own sexuality, but it does seem like the idea of a socially inappropriate love that you run the risk of being thrown in prison for expressing, it's not like hard to see <laughs> a connection. Okay. Considering we've also got George Michael on backing vocals here, that's not as far-fetched as it could potentially be, actually. <laughs> Yeah, that's, 
that might be wrapped up in it. I love that they're not speak its name, even very sadly, in 1985. Next on the list now is The Gambler by Madonna. To be confused with for the gambler by Kenny Rogers. You got no when to hold them. No when to fold them. Don't know when to hold them. This is more a case of a very upfront young woman, a gorgeous braggadocio and strength. It still sounds like house music to me, actually, the way this is put together. Madonna's best. I'm not sure if it landed up on Immaculate Collection, which for me is one of the best albums of all time, but I think it's a really nice entry and it's one that I haven't heard very often. I mean, it sums up a lot of what people love about Madonna. You have the incredibly gay backing here. This is high energy music. This is um, the kind of stuff that Stock Aitken Waterman were trying to do on a much more extreme budget than this, and it was associated with gay clubs. Madonna's vocal is also quite masculine and growly here. Yeah, she sounds like Cher on this. At this point, her image was very much like a young punk. It all goes very well with that. There's also that slight sense of like a confrontational, deliberate embarrassment that you get with Madonna. She is someone who is always cringe, but she's cringe in a way where it is a form of self-expression. When Lady Gaga does her Bowie voice and starts using that that bottom of her chest register, we are not just art for Michelangelo to carve. He can't rewrite the You can hear Madonna doing similar tricks with her voice here. It surprised me how similar they actually sounded. This isn't the time when Madonna's at her best as a vocalist. I think that comes in the 90s when she's really able to truly belt. The hookiness of the song is pretty remarkable as well because you don't just get the chorus as a main hook. You also get a post-chorus, which in my opinion is catchier than the chorus. Yeah. And and the narrator in the song is also an incredibly sexually aggressive woman who is um having risky sex, a theme of a lot of early Madonna. Yeah, she was unafraid of using her sexuality at a time when that was completely inappropriate still creeped people out (laughs) and when she came out of her sex book in the early 90s there was nothing but derision for the idea that sex could be something that a person enjoyed that was the way it was taken her response to the backlash she got for the sex book is actually pretty interesting as well she puts out a g-funk song It 
me like she was actually trying to analogize the backlash against her with the main musical backlash at that time, which was the moral panic over gangster rap. We know what's right, we know what's wrong, and music is not the killer. We are not talking bad things because we want to. This is what we live. And at a time when one of the main criticisms of gangster rap was how misogynistic it was, it's a really interesting statement. This does come from the same movie soundtrack as um, Crazy For You in the UK, where we are, it was retitled as Crazy For You, but the film was originally, and in the US, released as Vision Quest, which is a much worse title. This can't help but feel like the B-side, the less important track compared to Crazy For You, which is the better song. doesn't help that the video, especially by Madonna's standards, just has footage of her singing the song on stage while the movie clips just kind of shoved in there. It's very lame. There's an autopilot sense to parts of this, isn't there? Mm-hmm. So let's look at some of the songs outside of the top five. Going back to the Motor City, we have Dancing in the Street, which was released for charity. <laughs> I'd like to remind people, first and foremost... Now, the Okay, we, we haven't even said who is in this yet, have we? Dancing in the Street with Mick Jagger and David Bowie. These are two legends. Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. I've had the privilege of seeing play live in uh, Greenwich a few years ago. And Dancing in the Street, as it was originally released, was an extraordinary soundtrack to riots. It spoke of great oppression. It had its roots in the ghost dance movements of the 1890s in a lot of ways. And that didn't stop it from being this beautiful track that at the same time was just about having a dance escaping the Martha Reeves song I believe is Perfectly imperfect. It's obviously been produced on a low budget, but everything about it just chimes through. It's been covered by a hundred thousand people. One day that he decided, Mick Jagger and David Bowie, to toss off their own version and record the video all within about the space of thirteen hours. So how do you think they did? I think this is one of the most remarkable pop videos ever made. Um I think <laughs> most people would agree with that. Um so dancing in the street is one of those records that is absolutely loathed by a lot of people because it is seen as being two beloved artists selling out or being embarrassing, um, essentially. And the first time I saw this, it was on some sort of um, best music videos of the 80s sort of show. It came on, both my parents started trying to crawl under the sofa cushions and I was just sitting there with my little propeller beanie going around going, yeah, I like Mick Jagger, he's cool. There's a thing that happens to artists who have long careers where they will put out an album which is a bit of a change in direction for them that's very critically well received and then immediately their reputation 
kind of goes in the toilet. And this tends to happen around the 15-year mark, which was exactly when this was happening to Bowie. Dancing in the Street was his follow-up to Let's Dance, which was and still is critically acclaimed, but had a shift towards a mainstream pop sound, which he almost dramatises in the intro to the title track. that alienated a lot of people who preferred Bowie's art rock stuff. So the visual of David Bowie and Mick Jagger getting it on, doubler entendre intended, in a bunch of incredibly cheap-looking street (laughs) footage is... I guess to a lot of people, it felt they were being betrayed. Who is this smiling, happy, dancey man? Where did that crazy space alien go? Mick Jagger, on the other hand, is just like impossible to make cringe because he is so embarrassing in every single thing he does that it's just cool. And I think he fared better here. But both of them are just doing impressions of themselves. (laughs) Like there's a way that Bowie delivers... um, they'll be swinging in this kind of like almost campy like uh, <laughs> doing Bowie at karaoke kind of voice they'll be swinging swinging dancing in the street honest this video especially now that we are in an era where we expect pop stars to do embarrassing dancing for viral meme purposes is awesome this video is great (laughs) i love every time i watch it i notice a new dance move which is the funniest thing ever i love the particular shot where um jagger is jaggering in the front of the frame and bowie is facing away from the camera with his hands to either side of his head like antennas sort of twisting them side to side and they are flirting there's this shot towards the end of the video of them shaking their rumps together Angie Bowie claimed that they had sex during the making of this video no one believes her because she's Angie Bowie but there is a kind of a um, a joyful homoerotic tension to this which is lovely yeah I can agree with a lot of that I would swap around who I find more embarrassing however I think that this fits really nicely with Bowie's work of this era it would fit in with the Let's Dance album I think the backing track is crap I think it's completely failed to capture the incipient rebellion and joy of the original I just think that this is Jagger at his very, very worst, and he just craps up every shot that he's doing. The style of Bowie, I think he comes across really quite admirably. I think he looks good for the mid-80s. I think he looks healthy, whereas Jagger is dressed. I think he throws in one of his worst vocals, and this is a man who occasionally will just puke his sounds out. It doesn't matter what you wear, just as favourite era of Jagger vocals comes with his London Stool of Economics voice, as I've coined it, which is things like Mother's Little Helper, where he is genuinely himself. She goes running for the shelter of her mother's little helper, and it helps her on her way 
Whereas this is him attempting to sound like James Brown. So I would give this a 5 out of 10 and I think it would be a good 7 out of 10 if it was just a Bowie Oscar. I think I like it a lot more than you do. The actual melody of Dancing in the Street is so insistent and brilliant that it hits great. I do enjoy them screaming random place names out. <laughs> which which reminds me of nothing as much as the opening to Ballroom Blitz, which we talked about on the show before. Yeah. There's a joie de vivre. You can't fake that. And especially as just a bit of nonsense that they threw together for charity. I think this is a very fun record. Speaking of very fun records, we have Slave to the Rhythm by Grace Jones. Oh, to the river, slave to the river. This is so cool <laughs> to go from <laughs> Grace Jones is the coolest woman ever. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, where, where Madonna is like always deliberately a bit embarrassing because of her unselfconsciousness and blatant attention seeking. Grace Jones is obviously, if you look at it objectively, she must have been at least as attention seeking as Madonna because she was a superstar. But yeah. she never feels like she is. The thing here as well is that within the British culture to have a woman of colour insisting upon respect and attention, that just led to nothing yeah. but derision in the British press, in the media landscape as a whole. Even the title of the song is designed to piss people off along those lines, slave to the rhythm. Yes, that's one thing that I'm not completely comfortable with, coming as it does from the clever, clever Paul Morley, Trevor Horn, Frankie Goes to Hollywood house there. But I'm not, there's no way that Grace Jones is going to do something she's uncomfortable with. What you get out of mm. it is an incredible slice of very modern sound into my ears, R&B. The way she works in this song is more like a band leader. The chain gangs never saw the action. Keep it up, keep it up. It is that, yeah. It's got a poeticness in that delivery there. She's not forcing anything out. She's too cool to try hard and sing it. It's definitely an heir to a James Brown type funk track. Grace Jones is obviously an icon. Lazy Gaga cited her as a primary influence. Grace Jones also showed up on the recent Beyonce album. So this is someone who continues to be an icon and in a world that places a premium on looks, she's extraordinarily striking. She continues to have that otherworldly beauty at 74. She's achieved an extraordinary amount and in spite of the media openly hostile to her showing her power. Yeah, absolutely. Next on our chart 
is Cloud Busting by Kate Bush, which comes from her Hounds of Love record. So Hounds of Love is considered to be Kate Bush's consensus peak, her sort of masterpiece album, I suppose. It's the one where you don't have to be like, um, well, if you ignore the Australian accent... <laughs> I do think this song is something of a masterpiece. This was produced on a technical development I didn't get to talk about, the Fairlight CMI. What's an that? extremely expensive sampler, one of the first ones available. It had a sequencer built into it. It's considered to be one of the first digital audio workstations, which is the software that Everything is made in now if you produce music. We're recording a podcast in one now, you know. Right. And the result of that is that it gave people power over their arrangements in a way that they... Previously, you had to like go and sit down and write it all out and sheet music and duplicate the sheet music and teach all your musicians. But on the Fairlight, you could write and hear back what you were doing on the fly. And it's difficult to overstate how much of a revolution this was. The arrangement of cloud busting is, I can only really describe it as um, Fairlight folk. It uses this kind of modal folk song melody, but it's built out of these really short little string samples. The Fairlight didn't have a lot of memory for a sample. It relies on a lot of digital reverb to try and give some sort of body and presence to the sound, but it doesn't really have that. There's a sense here of the uncanny. There's an unnaturalness as well as a naturalness to the sounds. On the B-side of this single actually was My Lad in Love, which is a traditional Irish air that dates back to at least 1890. Simultaneously in Cloud Busting, I feel senses of classical musicians. Um, there's something very cerebral and elevated. It's an unusual song as well. The weirdest song in terms of the writing on this chart. It's the story of the pseudoscientist Wilhelm Reich. He claimed to discover something called orgon energy and he was building these devices that were these long metal tubes and using them to induce rain. And the song is told from the perspective of his grown-up son learning that his father was fallible when the people from the government showed up to take him away. This is one of the things that's so interesting about Kate Bush. She wasn't interested in just playing a female narrator. A lot of her work has a lot of gender bending where she sings in character as male characters. But she always does so in this very feminine way with her distinctive voice. Yeah. I don't think there's any surprise that this song was sampled a decade later by Utah Saints in a house track, Something Good, just taking her delivery of, I know something good is gonna happen. Because it is heavenly. It's spot on. Yeah. listening that closely and if you're not watching the video which is like a short film made by Terry Gilliam with set yeah. design from people who worked on Alien 
if you aren't paying that much attention, it does work as a sort of a love song. There's a real universality to this, which is、um, really exceptional, and it's stuff that I try to do in my own songwriting, and I'm jealous of Kate Bush for that. Kate Bush has actually also been in the charts very recently as well. Running up that hill was a UK number one last year, I believe. Yes, used in、uh, Stranger Things, the Netflix show. It was then re-released, and that's obviously a, a song. It's a song、uh, about、type. pegging. This is a very uncool pick for my favorite Kate Bush song, but I actually really love "Don't Give Up" because、like、her presence on that song is just so angelic. She seems superhuman. That's pretty wild about this chart、um, that we haven't seen before, and I don't think we'll see again. Is that there are two TV themes here? <laughs> the theme tune to Miami Vice by Jan Hammer. Also have the theme to Howard's Way by the Simon May Orchestra,、um, or the Simon May Keyboard, rather. Miami Vice. They're selling a sense of excitement, of sunny beaches, of guys with their sleeves rolled up, sort of the designer stubble, sunglasses. Yeah, we could all be in Miami Vice if this place, whilst we drive around Milton Keynes after dark. I get that. I understand why this dynamic piece of music has gone to be successful here. We need to talk about video. It actually shows the interface. Of the Fairlight sampler that I talked about before, and shows Jan Hammer personally programming it. The theme to Miami Vice has ended up being really significant in the synthwave movement slash fad of the last decade. You know, the video here kind of positions Jan Hammer as being like a classical composer sitting down and scoring everything out using traditional notation on his Fairlight.、Um, there's、yeah. a, there's a sense here of classiness of composership as. As well as the obvious associations we get with Miami Vice, which is cool guys doing cool things to cool guitars in an eighties way.、Yeah. Um, synthwave is very much concerned with recreating the vibe of the cinematic, televisual, and slightly kitschy eighties. Specifically, it's arguably the most influential record on this chart. Jan Hammer here is taken completely seriously as the solitary genius making his masterwork. It just so happens that his tool is a green 1980s computer screen. It's really quite compelling to watch him do it. Also, Miami Vice is a show that I can understand why people have a lot of nostalgia for it. It's a really well-made show. It looks great. A lot of 80s entertainment was extremely aspirational, but Miami. Vice was both aspirational and dark. You know, they were cops. They're violent men. 
the thing about Miami Vice as well as a TV show is that as well as having pretty down-to-earth stories, they had one of the best guest casts that ever really occurred. A lot of people who had gone to really mainstream success in Hollywood had a lot of their before-they-were-famous moments in that TV show. This is sheer sense as a chart-bothering hit. I can't at all say the same for Howard's way. <laughs> I don't see how right. this very miserable story um, became an aspirational hit at a time of monetarism, you know? One of the things that you'll see in the opening titles to both of these TV shows is Boats. You saw them in all the music videos. You can think of all the Duran Duran things where they're all partying on yachts. Nowadays, outside of a certain kind of hip-hop context, that would now be considered really gauche, which is proof that the world is actually better now than it was in the 80s. So Howard's Way is, as best as I can tell, it's, it's not quite a soap opera. Um, it's a slight, it wasn't like complete trash like Crossroads or Emmerdale Farm, but it wasn't good either. It was, um, it was on the same level as something like Call the Midwife or Downton Abbey. And it revolves around this awful family, the Howards, who are all just like sleeping with various people and constantly worrying about not getting money for their boat dealership business while also riding around on boats. It had no humour in it, very little acting. My father claims he watched it because the lead actor in it um, was also in one of his favourite TV shows of all time, Gangsters, and he spent the whole time going, no, Klein! It is an unwatchably bad show. I don't know if you've actually tried to watch any of it. No, the only things that I've picked up is through being a guy who's into retro English television. People I know online have gone through their own watch-throughs, and it sounds utterly miserable to me. Oh, we've got to talk about the record. It has all these little passages where it goes into a kind of sentimental register, and I immediately imagined actors sort of mugging at the camera, showing off their cheekbones, or <laughs> doing like funny laughs, ha ha ha, as their name comes up beneath them, you know? Yeah. It surprised me when I actually saw the title sequence and found out that that's not what's happening. They're just riding around on a boat. But it also does the thing that you see in a lot of hack TV themes, which is it's clearly using the scansion of the title. The theme tune to Howard's Way. The theme to Howard's Way. Okay. It's the theme song. Dry your eyes, Sunday girl. <laughs> this music sounds like the backing track to a corporate video. <laughs> it sounds like something that an Alan Partridge-like person should be walking from the wrong side of the shot into continually. I think a lot of the entertainment that people were exposed to in the 80s was like actual explicit propaganda for the 80s neoliberal culture. I was watching it and at one point the lead actor complains about how he never actually liked his job as an airport engineer anyway because he had to deal with all of these civil servants and there's like this kind of idea of like wealthy people hating the government and starting out on their own shitty businesses selling things that rich people don't need to other rich people and sold to you as like an aspirational goal it's really ugly there's some horrible sentiments in that 
Everyone watched it because it was like the only thing that was on on Sunday back in the days when there were only three channels. Is mostly remembered through parodies. Damn it, John, I do believe you're scared. You're damn right I'm scared. <laughs> I sense Marjorie's hand in this. Marjorie? I never told you this, Peter, but after Marjorie left me, I settled a block of shares on her and the boy. I don't think Howard's Way has any kind of cultural legacy at all, and neither do I think it should. Makes you think, though, doesn't it, the difference between the US and the UK, because I can see both of these programmes having come from the very top. Margaret Thatcher lying in a bath receiving electric shots while she drinks whiskey, perhaps calls the phone and says, right, we need something that says Thatcher is the way. Boom, that gets made. Whereas President Reagan half dozing mutters something about there needing to be a uh, programme about how cocaine no longer is the thing to be doing and law enforcement at all. Boom, that gets made in that direction as well. They both seem to be very top-down, representative of their respective countries. So next up comes Road to Nowhere by the Talking Heads. Talking Heads, of course, being one of the rare bands that came out of the mid to late 70s that continued to be relevant, interesting and successful, the trifecta, well into the mid 80s. And this is the least likely 80s stool disco hit ever. Mm. They've managed to bring David Burns, doom-laden songwriting to this chanting, all the people together, utopian feel. David Byrne is, is always, as a as a pop star, he's someone who is, I guess, just like a little bit slightly less intelligent than he thinks he is, but he's still pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, he does lead with his brain when perhaps he should lead with his dancing. I enjoy people who aim maybe a little bit higher than the limit of their own ambitions, and I think he's a great one for that, actually. But I think incorporating a gospel choir in a dance song that is ultimately about the pointlessness of life and how there's nothing after death and we've got no idea what we're doing is actually quite a funny image. Well, we know where we're going, but we don't know where we've been. In the Talking Heads track that came previously, he had taken on the cadence of a Pentecostal preacher. You may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. He takes on the certainty that he had heard all over religious right radio. I think it's a different song to um, Once in a Lifetime, which was a dissociation. There's something quite cosy about it. It's celebratory of the pointlessness of life without being too cutesy about it either. Um, We have noted sewer into our river's opponent next, Ferdal Sharkey with a good heart. For me, this is a wonderful bit of classic country songwriting that's made interesting through production choices that are done there because you have that synthesizer sound that only a few years earlier, Ferdinand Sharkey was mocking. 
in My Perfect Cousin. But there's also tied that to a great Motown feel, uh, contemporary Motown feel, that slickness in the backing vocals. And then it goes into a kind of stadium rock thing. all the way through it is a very universal well-written just kind of love song essentially a a yearning song seeking love Uh, it works really well for me and it's one of my favorites is on this chart (laughs) unfortunately i did not like the song at all i think fergal sharkey's voice really winds me up on a visceral level find the synthesizers he's using to be very good. I think possibly since he came from someone who is reflexively negative about synthesizers getting into pop music, his synthesizers are just a lot cheaper and nastier than everyone else's around him. It actually stood out to me how little I liked this compared to a lot of very similar sounding records. Awesome. <laughs> we got that one out of the way. Now, Sharky, as I say, is doing incredible work with his activism. He's doing a high-level fight against the water companies that are continuing to pollute rivers and lakes. So I think that in many ways he continues to live out punk principles. My dad talks about what he calls gammon punks, which are people who were punks in the 1980s who have since gone fully Brexit. A lot of more prominent punks have actually become proper reactionaries. I mean, John Lydon probably being the most famous example. Basically a cautionary tale about what happens when you get addicted to just being a contrarian rather than having your own principles. Without a a class-based analysis of society, if you think that you're just going to be contrary, then you you are going to make an absolute fool of yourself in your dotage. Yeah, after the undertones, he tried out this solo career and he brought that very distinctive voice and accent to pop music such as this. And after that, he went into the other side of the business. He sat across a desk as A&R and then went further up the music chain. And it's kind of in his retirement when he was looking for nice places to fish that this the scale of this atrocity became clear. I don't think we've quite got an acceptable face for this side of a fight against a government that doesn't value human life or anything good. Also appearing on our charts is a record that became emblematic of a certain type of guy. A record that is probably hated more because of who its fans are than for anything about it. And that would be um, Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits. was incredibly critically panned in the UK when it came out. It was seen as being sickly and outdated and mawkish as well. The idea was that Mark Knopfler, the frontman, sounded like an arsehole. I mean, if you're someone who, like me, grew up reading my dad's old scenes and things like that from his punk days, constantly dire straits were a punchline. None of this is fair. It is a fine record. I think the 
Pink Floydiness was actually part of the reason for the backlash to it. Pink Floyd had really fallen out of fashion with the punks and had not yet had a renaissance. Two people who considered themselves punks in the 80s, it was against the natural order of things. I mean, I can hear that similarity, but I find Knopfler to be a more interesting musician than Dave Gilmore. And I like Dave Gilmore. I like uh, quite a bit of Pink Floyd. I think that there's a fierceness of musical attention that Knopfler gets in his guitar solos, missing from what Gilmore does. I've always enjoyed his vocals as well. This is, of course, from the album of the same name, Brothers in Arms, which has the singles surrounding it were Money for Nothing, which is notable for this era for starting out with Sting saying, I want my MTV. And having an infamously uh, technologically driven video. It was suitable for that era because that was how MTV got itself to leave the kind of New Jersey ghetto in which it had started. It was uh, an astroturfed campaign that the kids were to call up their cable providers and say that I want my MTV. Dire Straits are better songwriters than they're often given credit for and they have a lot more going on within their music as rock artists than, again, I think has ever been fashionable. Knopfler always came off quite a modest person who was surprised by the popularity he was having, which is a charming attribute in a virtuoso guitarist. What really caught my ear about Brothers in Arms was specifically the way that he interacts with the guitar solo. There's guitar solos all through the track, but it operates as a call and response between his lyrics. The song is about soldiers dying on the battlefield and it almost feels like the guitar is sort of taking the place of like the breaths as the soldiers are breathing out their last or maybe the souls sort of slowly leaving their body. a time with uh, prevailing Thatcherism, it's very much an anti-Falklands song as well. The Falklands War, infamously being the thing that won her another election. At the time, it was generally believed that Margaret Thatcher opened up hostilities with Argentina in order to boost her popularity and get voted in again. But when the files actually came out, it was more that she just had no idea what she was doing and kind of sunk the Belgrano by accident. <laughs> Usually, when it comes to evil versus incompetent, I'd bet on evil. But uh, hey, there you go. Our last song of today comes from, I suppose we might think of him as the anti fertile Sharky in some ways. Someone who had started out with a credible punk band, Generation X, and who was made into this international star of the back of music that was much worse. That's Billy Idol with Rebel Yell. Yeah, 
um, one of the first MTV stars, of course. It's clear that the reason MTV liked him was because he looked like how MTV would design a punk. He is handsome and he has bleached hair shaped into some sort of spiky arrangement. And then there's the thing that he does with his lip, which is something he does whenever the camera is looking at him for more than a couple of seconds and is the most unappealing and vaguely desperate thing I've ever seen a band frontman do. Yeah, that whole look, of course, will be taken up by the character Spike in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. At the same time, while there is that lottery-winning ridiculousness of Billy Idol, whose bland features fit the right time and the place, there is something seductive about this song. It Mm. is MTV corporate rebellion, and it does just what it needs to do. Billy Idol was already seen as being a remorseless sellout. I don't think he was necessarily that much bigger a sellout than what anyone else was doing in the 80s, but I think the fact that he ended up defining what punk was to a bunch of people who weren't going very deep led to a lot of the cool kids being very resentful of him. Yeah, and that exists to this day. That remains the perception of him. And he's done no favours for himself for every you know, post-1986 career choice he's made. He's an astonishing figure to look at his discography and just see what he's done at various points because he's tried very hard to remain relevant and he's completely failed to succeed. My favourite of this is his album Cyberpunk in the 90s. The future has imploded into the present with no nuclear war and new battlefields in people's minds and souls. Megacorporations are the new governments. Computer-generated info domains are the new frontiers. He had a music video in which he transforms into a Tetsuo the Iron Man-style cyborg, and he shipped it with a floppy disk explaining the mythology of the album and a bunch of strange multimedia programs which made animated Billy Idol slide around on your screen. There's an enthusiasm to it. You sense he really believed in what he was yeah. doing, which I do actually admire. Yeah, he does. He, he will grasp things. I mean, speaking of David Byrne as a person who considers himself more intelligent than he might perhaps be, Billy Idol is someone with more enthusiasm than anything else. And I feel, you know, I love the classics. I like a nice show business cliche. So my favourite terrible Billy Idol decision is his Christmas album. Yes! Which he seems to have taken exactly as seriously as Bing Crosby would have done. I love that. Thumbity thumb thumb, thumbity thumb thumb, look at Frosty go. Thumbity thumb thumb, thumbity thumb thumb, over the hills of snow. With a rebel yell, she cried more, more, more. Like, that's an insane lyric if you think about it, because the rebel yell was what Confederate soldiers would shout when they were attacking people. And I think that typifies the thing that caused people to hate Billy Idol, the idea of this superficial rebellion. Like, I'm pretty sure he chose rebel yell because it sounded good to say, rather than because he was wanting to support the Confederate. But as a record, it it kind of slaps. Like, it has it this does. beautiful yeah. driving forward rock with a W kind of backing here. I have a, quite a strong association with it. Um, it was included in the soundtrack of Metal Gear Solid 5. So for me, it is the sound of raiding an airbase in Zaire, Angola border. Detectives, the map has been updated. 
those are the images I want to play when I'm hearing this song. Idle claims the rebel yell came from brand of bourbon whiskey that was popular in America and he said he was hanging out with the Stones and that's when he wrote the song but I think that that's just post I've made a terrible choice and uh, gone on the side of the slaveholders there kind of rationalisation the song isn't really about anything enough to get mad about it of course um, you can't it's you really just can't. about like a cool girl yeah <laughs> the sort of puppy dog <laughs> aspect of Billy Idol which is quite cute when you get the hang of it you know in the same way that for Prince having sex was a kind of spiritual all-encompassing thing for David Bowie he had his set of artistic obsessions for Billy Idol it's hey girl alright and that's lasted for his entire career MTV is often blamed even now for boiling pop stardom down to people who looked really convincing and may not have had the best music and forcing more legitimate artists into more underground channels because they are ugly. MTV was, in some other ways, it was pushing the boundaries. In 1985, it was actually campaigning for safe sex in response to the AIDS crisis. And it was putting on genuinely controversial artists like Madonna. The fact is... If MTV hadn't been MTV, someone else would have been. Music videos are in fact good. There's a reason they haven't gone away as a form, even though there was a real threat of that happening in the early 2010s. People like getting to sit with the concept of the song. And a lot of the artists who people really remember as being like the great innovative superstars of the 80s, people like Michael Jackson and Prince, Madonna, um, they were all artists who used their music videos as the main form of communication where you you would like actually buy the music videos separately on video so you could sit with them um i grew up with a vhs tape of all of madness's songs in my house yeah that is the legacy of this time and it's never to go away with the lights of youtube now good work from billy idol who managed to create his one good song (laughs) (laughs) white wedding of course is the same song again (laughs) (laughs) well nice one That was 1985. Next time you come and see us, we will be covering the modern era again, catching up on the legacy of all of this time. Uh, Thanks very much indeed for listening. Holly, you're amazing. Thanks very much for being here with me. Thank you. Um, And I hope that you get a chance, everybody out there, to help us grow the show. It's important that more people find out how great this is as a party. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Peace out. Lady brings a new cup of coffee, peek on the window. She would rather keep on reading. Look at the frame. There's a handsome guy inside this car.